happening. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined remotely, as always, by my co-host Joseph Casharo. Talk to me, Cash. Uh, I mean, just pure chaos in the NBA this Wednesday morning. Who knows or cares what day it is at yeah. this point? Yeah, I somehow Kevin Durant about what 16 hours ago, maybe less, not, not even. Yeah. Put together one of the single greatest games I've ever seen anybody play. And somehow that has already been overshadowed by an insane barrage of news. Most of it very bad this morning. And I don't even know if we're going to have time to get to all of this or how you want to go about talking about it. A lot of this information is literally like just coming to us now. Uh, the most recent being that Kawhi Leonard may have suffered an ACL injury in his right knee. The news already was that he was basically going to be out indefinitely with that knee injury. Now, I mean, if it is indeed an ACL injury, it could be the kind of thing that is affecting him well into next season as well. So there's that. There's the fact that Chris Paul, after putting together what may well have been the greatest single series of his playoff career the situation that he navigated with his shoulder the way that he managed to pick apart every single denver nuggets pick and roll coverage and completely blow up their base scheme and then blow up every single adjustment they tried to subsequently make after all of that after getting the conference finals with a really excellent shot at finally breaking through to the finals and winning a title i mean Probably, if not the best, then at worst, I would say the second best opportunity for him after maybe the 2018 season with the Rockets. After all that, Chris Paul uh, apparently registered a positive COVID test. He's in the health and safety protocols for we don't know how long. Stan Van Gundy is out in New Orleans after one season there. Scott Brooks is out in Washington after many seasons there. Uh, Nikola Jokic's MVP season ended with him getting ejected for a flagrant two foul. And we still have three second round playoff series going on. Where do you want to start with all of this cash? Well, the first thing, and I just mentioned it to you off air before we started, but um, so before the Kawhi or CP news hit, it was already uh, a fact. I believe Kirk Goldsberry had tweeted out yesterday that when Kyrie Irving missed game five of Nets Bucks, he became the seventh all-star to miss a playoff game this year, which already was a record for a single postseason. And one day later, Kawhi Leonard's going to make it eight. So break that record already. And I mean, I, I guess we'll have to wait and see how long Chris Paul is in health and safety protocols, but it could be nine by early next week if he can't. Be ready for the start of the Western Conference Finals. Just, I mean, also it's madness. And look, and I don't, I don't, I know everyone is going to bring it up, and it, it's a very valid point. Like this is a compressed schedule. Everything about the last year ish of NBA basketball has been compressed and somewhat rushed, and everyone's trying to do what they can essentially to save as much of the pie as they can. Um, I, I, neither of us are. Uh, performance specialists or 
trainers or doctors like we don't like other than saying yeah the compressed schedule causes like I, I really don't know what else we have to add to this argument like this debate other than uh or it's not even a debate it's just a discussion other than this sucks it blows eight yeah. or nine all-stars are going to miss playoff games and this is like like it's not just series shifting stuff this is like season shifting championship shifting stuff future shifting stuff in the case of Kawhi Leonard, potentially, when you look at, you know, the makeup of that team, it's like, this, this is, yeah. And meanwhile, you know, Joel Embiid's out here playing on a torn meniscus. James Harden is out here playing 45 minutes on a strained hamstring. Like, this could still get worse. And it's scary. And like, you're right. We're not sports scientists, but we can listen to what sports scientists are saying. And what they're yeah. saying is, this was inevitable we were saying this even before the season started, that this was what was going to happen, that the players were going to be at elevated risks. The NBPA essentially, I mean, they went into the season with both eyes open. Like they knew that those were the risks. I, I can't put all the, I, we've talked about this already before, so we don't even really need to go back into it. I can't put all of the blame on the players union. I do think they deserve some share of the blame, but again, like for the thousandth time, they are not the ones who have the most leverage here. You know, the thought of potentially entering a lockout, the owner sort of held that over them like a cudgel. And they essentially curtailed the offseason so they could start the season earlier. They wanted to have NBA games on Christmas. They wanted to be able to squeeze the season in before the Olympics, which is insanely stupid because I don't think any sensible NBA player at this point is going to be looking at the Olympics and being excited or willing to go and play in that tournament like i don't know if any sensible person thinks the olympics should even be happening right so oh and by the way all of that was done so that next season can start on time in october right. after so great. another, we can have shortened, another off shortened off season and do this all over again like and with a full 82 game schedule next year and, and like we're eventually we're going to talk about basketball and like some of the pretty extraordinary things that have been happening on the basketball court in this postseason. Playoff basketball is amazing. We all love it. But like at what cost? You know, like it makes me worried, man. I'm scared to watch the Sixers game tonight because I don't know what's going to happen to Joel Embiid. I'm scared to watch the next Nets Bucks game because I'm worried that James Harden's hamstring might explode. Like there are consequences to this stuff. So it's just, it's a weird feeling. It's a weird place to be as we sit down here to talk about playoff games. But but that's where we're at. The Chris Paul thing, I mean, apparently he's vaccinated. So, so yeah, so it could his be- His time and health and safety protocols could be much shorter. It could be, and it could be a false positive. Like we don't know actually if he has symptoms or anything like that. That's just shit luck. Like, you know, I don't know that there's a whole lot that you can do about that, but obviously the hope- is that he won't have to be in health and safety for too long, that he's able to come back and play. I mean, the Clippers and Chris Paul, eternally playoff cursed. I, I don't know what else to say. It, it's just any time you think there might be a hope of them breaking through, of this being their year, both that franchise and that player, something seems to go wrong at the worst possible time. It's madness. Yeah, I, I will say, and I mean, you kind of just touched on it too, like the... The Chris Paul situation, while, look, anytime we're talking about COVID, I don't want to make light of it at all, but definitely less worrisome in the grand scheme of things. 
right now than the Kawhi Leonard situation. I, I again, I realize even just as I say that it sounds ridiculous because we're talking about COVID, but again, like you know, he's vaccinated. We don't know. Like for, for all we know, it could be a five day thing, right? Like the health and safety protocols are ten to fourteen days. If you're vaccinated, it could be I think half of that. Um, as you mentioned, it could be a false positive. Like we can't even jump to conclusions that he'll miss a single game. The Kawhi situation is just like it. If it ends up being a bad ACL injury that you know lingers into next year, like this is, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, just gotta like keep keep our fingers crossed and hope that it's not that for the I mean, time the being only, until we know more. Yeah, I was gonna say the only potential silver lining to be found is that in the case of Kawhi, you would assume um, pretty safely that he is the caliber of player where you know similar to Kevin Durant when he blew out his Achilles in a contract year, it didn't affect his ability to maximize his earnings, you know? And, oh, oh, Kawhi's getting a max. Right. Like, and I'm saying, so if there's if there's one silver lining to be found, it's that at least, you know, usually this could, this could have been more catastrophic in a contract year, you know, for a player not of his caliber. And, you know, I'm grasping at straws here for a silver lining, but in the case of Kawhi, it's that at least, look, we talk about their careers and very short windows of earning potential. You know, at least in his case, it shouldn't be affected. Do you have any like quick thoughts on on the Van Gundy thing, on the Brooks thing? Um, I mean, the Brooks thing, not really. Like, ugh, I've never been a big Scott Brooks fan. I thought the fact that they got to the playoffs might have saved his job, but you know, a guy's either the guy or he's not the guy. I don't think Scott Brooks is the guy now. Whether the Wizards make the right decision after this is a is a big question. But the Van Gundy thing is more shocking to me and much less explainable. Were they disappointing this year? Sure, but when you really boil it down and look at the roster and, and the roster construction around Zion Williamson, I don't really know how much more could have been milked from that team from a wins and losses perspective. Now, if there's process stuff, if there's, you know, locker room stuff, I think, was it a couple of weeks ago, there was reports about Brandon Ingram, maybe not having the best relationship with SVG. Um, you know, obviously it could be stuff like that that's leading to it, but on the whole, not a great look for the Pelicans and and just not the kind of chaos that you want to be nurturing your franchise like a talent like Zion Williamson you know like I don't want to get all like obviously not like I'm not even going to talk about the potential of leaving it's way too but I'm just saying like it, it wasn't the most stable environment when Anthony Davis was there and I know it was very easy towards the end to you know Maybe roll your eyes at the way he went about leaving and that that's all folks sure and whatever else you want to say about it. But a lot happened to get to that point with Anthony Davis in New Orleans. And uh, I think, you know, if we had the full story from both sides, I think most people would side with Anthony Davis over the years and the things he endured there uh, with that franchise. So, yeah, I would say if you're a Pelicans fan, this is very concerning. Yeah, I mean, it could be or it could not be if if they find a coach that's like a better cultural fit. I mean, I do think, you know, offensively, that team in terms of its construction was pretty limited. And if anything, I think overachieved at the offensive end this past season, just mainly on the strength of Zion's ridiculous interior scoring. Like the fact that he was able to do it with very little spacing around him is stunning. But I think defensively, they were... Again, like personnel was part of the problem there, but defensively they were quite disappointing. And I mean, SVG comes with a reputation as being, 
you know, an attention to detail guy, somebody who is a defensive tactician. So it's it always feels weird when it's like you brought in this guy and you're cutting bait after one season. But also it's like if you really don't think that he is the right guy, then like why drag it out? You know, and like the same thing with Nate Bjorkman in Indiana. So uh, there are a ton of coaching vacancies all of a sudden around the league. I mean, Boston, Portland, Indiana, uh, Orlando, uh, and now these two teams as well. So should be a really fascinating offseason of coaching movement, uh, not just player movement coming up. But let's let's put that news dump behind us and move on to some actual basketball because, as I mentioned off the top, Kevin Durant played one of the best, most complete two-way games that I've ever seen anyone play. If you factor in, you know, the moment, the stakes, 2-2 in the second round, down 16 at the half, you know, in danger of going on the road, trailing 3-2 and having to play an elimination game in the opponent's building. James Harden is playing, but he is a shell of himself. He can't do anything. Like, I, how how many times did he even take a step inside the three-point arc last night? Like, yeah, I, it's insane say- to me that he played 45 minutes. That's absurd. But also, those were 45 very low-impact minutes because a lot of the time he was just dribbling the ball up the floor, hanging out near half court, getting rid of it and not really doing anything. I mean, he would get Pat Connaughton switched onto him and just like pass it off. Like he, he wasn't looking to attack anybody. And then also Drew Holiday was face guarding him for some reason, which is, you know, something we can, we can talk about from the Bucks perspective. Uh, I think that was more the Bucks just sort of outsmarting themselves and taking Drew Holiday out of the defensive possession more so than it was like, that was the reason James Harden wasn't doing anything. I don't think James Harden wanted to do anything. Agreed. If anything, it was like Holiday face guarding him gave him an excuse to do nothing and just act as a decoy when he didn't necessarily need to be a decoy because he didn't hit any of his threes. He wasn't attacking anyone off the dribble. Point being, that was the situation. Kyrie Irving's out. James Harden is purely a decoy, although he did throw some pretty nice passes from the top of the floor. That yeah, allowed- in the third quarter... As well, yeah, in that comeback. And that allowed them, you know, like I'm not going to say he was totally useless in this game. I think on the whole, he was probably a slight net negative just because there were a lot of possessions where he's just taking touches away from KD. And like they're burning a ton of the shot clock trying to get something going with him dribbling the ball and it's going nowhere. And that possession that KD bailed out with like one second on the shot clock hitting that ridiculous three over Middleton was a possession that they almost squandered trying to run something with Harden on the left side. It made no sense. So on the whole, probably a negative, but that did allow them at points to have KD kind of doing some stuff off of the ball. And there was one play where he cut along the baseline, Harden hit him with like a bullet lob from almost mid court that got him free throws. Another one when KD came and set a back screen for Joe Harris uh, who made a cut to the rim and Harden dimed him up really nicely. Like he was uh, bringing some value to the table, but given all that, no Kyrie, shell of Harden, on the ropes, potentially going to Milwaukee down three two. Kevin Durant produced a masterpiece: forty nine points, seventeen rebounds, ten assists, three steals, two blocks, sixteen of twenty three from the field, four of nine from three. 13 of 16 from the line in 48 minutes of play. He did not sit for this entire game. 
And he did all that at the offensive end with one of the best playmaking showcases that I've ever seen from him. Maybe the best, honestly, like made the Bucks pay pretty much any time they sent extra help his way. And also played some pretty phenomenal defense at the other end of the floor. So for 48 minutes. And, and of course, the Nets won. I don't know if I if I mentioned <laughs> that, but the Nets won the game. And they're now up 3-2. I mean, I don't think that means that they're going to win the series by any means. Like, they they still have a tough task ahead of them. I, I would say that it's probably unlikely that Durant is able to replicate that performance. So he's going to need to get more help from the supporting cast. And I don't know what Harden's going to be capable of giving them, you know, with an extra two days of rest or if Kyrie could come back at any point. But the Nets are up 3-2. I'm going to kick it to you, Cash, because I know you're just itching to basically give the Bucks a pat on the back and say, you know, you fought valiantly, good job, good effort, <laughs> but ultimately you were just outgunned in this one. I know that's what I'm about to hear from you. Yeah, that, that is definitely the impassioned rant. Uh, I'll be honest, my the the passion I had for the rant I wanted to go on this morning, this afternoon, the the fervor that was going to be pent up in it you know it's it's been zapped a little bit i'm not gonna lie by the god-awful stench of that news dump we had to get through um, and and you know crappy news coming out of the nba today but i'm still passionate enough about it so yes let's talk about it because look we're we're not performing brain surgery here okay like we're, we're talking about basketball we're quite capable of multitasking appreciating that kd's we we can appreciate kd's godlike performance and stress how embarrassing a performance that was by anyone in and or associated with a Bucks jersey last night, okay? Yes, Kevin Durant authored one of the greatest postseason performances you will ever see in any sport, as long as you live. Like, that's how good that performance was. First player in history with 45 plus, 15 plus, and 10 plus in a playoff game. And as you mentioned, he did it while playing every single second and playing lights out defense pretty much the whole time too. It was masterful. It was basketball perfection from an all-time great. And we were absolutely fortunate to get to watch it. And I take nothing away from that. But all that said, that is all true. And it can also be true that Mike Budenholzer, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, and everyone on that Bucks team pissed all over themselves last night. Both things can be true and in fact are true. How long did it take you, Wolfon? And I know the answer to this. It was probably like less than a handful of possessions. How long did it take you to realize that James Harden was not going to be much of anything offensively last night other than a decoy? I don't think it took you much more than five possessions, if that. I mean, I think I texted you after five possessions to be like, yeah, they got to yes. pull the plug. Yeah. He, yeah. He, he you know who do didn't? Anything. You know who didn't have that registered with him? Mike Budenholzer. Because Drew Holiday, as you mentioned, was face guarding him almost the entirety of the 45 minutes James Harden played. In fact, he almost matched minutes with James Harden. What in God's name was the second half or, or the crunch time offense? You know? Why is Giannis Antetokounmpo stepping back on James Harden, who, look, I know is actually a good post defender. I'm not saying how could he, in general, I'm not saying how could he have not beat James Harden to post, but James Harden on one leg, and also, okay, they attacked James Harden for that one half-assed possession late in the fourth quarter. How about attack the guy playing on one leg earlier in the game instead of continually going at KD on the offensive end, who is a phenomenal, healthy defender? And even, like, okay, even that specific play where it ended up with Giannis stepping back on Harden and bricking it, you, you watch the replay, and I love it. 
but I can't remember who it was from Brooklyn was coming in to help. To Harden Dalton. waved him off. Harden waved him off. And if you're Giannis Antetokounmpo, first of all, there's the history there between them. But if you're Giannis Antetokounmpo, how are you not... Okay, embarrassed maybe isn't the right word, but like, how does that not like gnaw at you, man? This, this guy is playing on one leg 45 minutes and you've got him in the post and he doesn't even want to double. He's essentially saying, I don't need help. I can handle this guy. He's got nothing. And James Harden was proven correct. I know your stance on the the whole Giannis should be guarding KD like that everyone wants and why isn't he guarding him? And I know your stance on it. And to be honest with you, I actually agree with you. Now, having said that, could they have tried it like literally one possession? Just to see, look, I, I get what you're saying that they would have just screened him off and, and probably, but also like maybe just try it once, see? Okay, but even even beyond that, because by and large, I do agree that I, I don't think he should guard KD because his strength and the reason he won Defensive Player of the Year honors was as a helper. But my issue is with Giannis's mentality. And it comes back to what I've said for a while now where I love the guy, but he's got this loyal loser vibe to him that he cannot seem to shake and it haunts them in the playoffs. So, okay, he, he's like content to go down with the ship rather than pushing everyone out of the way and just steering the motherfucker himself. He said after the game, he wants the challenge. He said that after the game, he wants the challenge in game six of guarding KD. And that, I believe he said something along the lines of like, he hopes that coach or but like essentially gives it to him. That, I'm paraphrasing, but that was the gist of it. And again, my issue isn't, oh, you should be guarding KD. It's that if that's actually what you want, dude, you're an MVP level superstar in the NB freaking A. I promise you, if you want it, you got it. Coach isn't going to stop you, man. You can be forceful. Stop being this like loyal loser, for lack of a better term. Like, dude, if that's really what you want, you can do something about it. I promise you that. Yeah. I think maybe deferential is like... That is a a much... Yes. But he is. He's far too deferential. And that's what I'm saying. Yes. Was I a little overboard in saying that... (laughs) He's content to go down to the sinking ship rather than push everyone out of the way and steer the MF for himself. Maybe I was a little overboard in saying that, but that is like the vibe, right? It's like, yo, at some point, man, and I'm not even saying he should do the wrong basketball thing, but I'm just saying at some point you want your superstars of that caliber, the the rare player that can be the best player on a championship team in the NBA, you want that guy to be forceful. And if push comes to shove at a point in a playoff series or in a game five, like it was going on, uh, Monday night in Brooklyn, you want a guy, or Tuesday night in Brooklyn, whatever the hell it was, to, yes, push everyone out of the way and steer that MF for himself and say, you know what? I, I'm going to get this down and come hell high water. Like, it, Giannis isn't that guy right now. He just has never proven he's capable of being that guy mentality-wise. Well, I don't, I, I don't think it's in his nature necessarily. I don't think he wants to be that. Like, I, he conceives of himself as like this, like a team player. And like, he'll do what the coach asks him to do. He'll do what he thinks is best for the team or what the coach thinks is best for the team. Like he is not, I don't think his nature or his personality is one to sort of take charge or make demands, you know? And I don't disagree with you that like that can become an issue in a situation like this. I personally don't think him taking charge and saying, get out of the way I'm guarding KD would have done anything to stop what happened to them last night. But I take your point And I think, it's correct. Like there are situations where he does need to be more assertive, be more forceful, take charge. I, I just think it's like, 
seeing all this stuff, even like CJ McCollum on Twitter, like, you know, lighting Giannis up for like saying this well, is the defensive player of the year. And like, he, he won't even take the toughest assignments. Like, again, it's a, a kind of fundamental misunderstanding of what actually made Giannis the defensive player of the year. B, I think a misunderstanding of like, try to play that scenario out. And, and we even talked, we've talked about this last episode. We talked about it on so many different episodes. Like the way that NBA offense works now, it's like if you're an NBA defense, it's not like you just take your best defender and throw him at like the opposing team's best offensive player and problem solved. Like everything is pick and roll. It's multi-screen actions. They're going for the most part to be able to get the matchups that they want or the built-in looks that they want against whatever coverage you decide to play. And I'm not saying that like Buddenholzer is blameless in all this, but it's like, I'm seeing like so many people saying it's like he didn't make, the right adjustments and or he didn't make any adjustments in the second half, which isn't true. Like I know they didn't put Giannis really as the primary on KD very often, if at all, but you know, they kind of toggled between Tucker and Middleton who are probably like their two best guys at actually getting over top of screens. They had Brooke dropping, you know, at a certain point, which I don't think was a great idea, but then they had him playing up closer to the level. They were showing and recovering. They were switching. It didn't really matter. Like he picked apart, every coverage they threw out there. Part of that was because of like the incredible playmaking game that he had. Part of it is the fact it's like, okay, so you pull Brooke Lopez off of the floor because KD is going at him. There were a couple possessions where you had the Nets setting screens basically at half court and KD is like slaloming all the way to the rim as Brooke Lopez sort of tries to track him in space. Then there were a couple where Brooks in like a shallow drop and Katie's able to snake it to get to his mid-range jumper, which is like literally what the hell do you do if you're Brooke Lopez? Like if you take an extra step out, he's blowing by you and get into the rim. Like I think that Brooke was doing everything that he could have done and should have been doing. So, okay, Bud sees that and he's like, we can't play Brooke. They go small with Giannis at the five. This is what I've been saying this entire time about this idea of like Giannis at the five as a panacea, especially with DiVincenzo out. Pat Connaughton's got to come into the game and fill out that lineup. Pat Connaughton got absolutely cooked, probably worse than Lopez did. There was one play where like it was a switch. Connaughton was too far back on the switch. Pull up three from KD. You know, another time, another couple of times actually where Connaughton's guarding Shamit. So again, KD's just calling up Shamit to screen for him. Connaughton's trying to hedge and recover. One time Shamit essentially like catches the ball. It's too aggressive a recovery from Connaughton. Shamit drives all the way to the basket and scores. Another time he does the exact same thing, but drives to the basket and draws help and kicks it out to Jeff Green for a three. I, I just, there there aren't really a lot of great solutions given the Bucks personnel. And when KD's going like that, like I, I really just don't think that Giannis being on the ball in that situation would have made a whole heck of a lot of difference. Now, if you want to talk about the fact that Giannis is playing off of KD, essentially being stationed on the back line so that he can help. And he was pretty ineffective as a back line helper in that second half. And especially in the fourth quarter, that's a conversation I'm prepared to have because he made no impact. And it wasn't like some of the time it was just because like Katie's putting up jump shots and Giannis is away from the play. So what is he going to do? Some of the time the nets were working the ball in the middle of the floor and Giannis wasn't really there with the help rotation. And like part of that is because he's guarding shooters because the Nets spread you out like that. They can go five out, which 
is, you know, maybe another reason why you say, okay, just throw Giannis on KD because he, if you're just stapling him to like a good shooter, like Joe Harris or Jeff green, Jeff green, who went seven of eight from three in that game five, by the way, then he can't really be an effective helper anyway. So you might as well try him on ball against KD. Like I can hear that, but I thought the bigger issue was like Giannis didn't make a whole heck of a lot of impact as a helper. But just saying like he's the defensive player of the year. So why isn't he guarding Kevin Durant is so reductive and, and just like completely misses the point. Also, CJ McCollum should probably not be allowed to tweet about defense. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you. Like CJ McCollum sitting at home after inadvertently helping tank Damian Lillard and the Blazers season down the stretch of that series. CJ McCollum and- sitting at home after getting ousted by a team whose backcourt consisted of Facundo Campazzo, Austin yeah. Rivers, and Monty Morris. That's the backcourt yeah. that beat you. Come on, man. I like yeah. CJ, but like, come on. So do I, but agreed. Come on, man. Another thing too, and this is completely not X's and O's related, and maybe you won't care about it. How do you feel about Giannis in the middle of a series saying Kevin Durant's the best player in the world right now? Because as I tweeted last night, look, I'm all for self-awareness. I am, but not now. Not 3-2 playoff series, man. Come on. There is a, it just reeks of defeatist attitude. Like, well, and as, as many people have pointed out, uh, many, many people, it's not dissimilar to DeMar DeRozan when the Raptors went down 2 nothing or 3 nothing to Cleveland, one of the few times they did that, saying something along the lines of, well, if LeBron was on the Raptors, they'd be up. Or what, what was the dollar figure? Remember he said he'd give... I think it was $100, which is... $100. I mean, you'd figure <laughs> that anybody who could guard LeBron would be in line for more than $100. Like, that's the really yeah. insulting thing. Yeah, was that he only but, offered a hundred bucks? Yeah, for someone to stop LeBron, but it it just reeks of that same defeatist attitude, and it's like, yo, you want you want after the series, man, or after the season, you want to say that, cool, but in the middle of a series, it's three two. You're competing for your team is competing for a championship at this level. Okay, I didn't have any problem with it, and I don't think it's the same as that at all because Giannis didn't say he's the best player in the world and we have no chance of stopping him. Or if he was on our team, we'd be winning. He said that. And he also said like, he wants the challenge of guarding him in game six. Like, I don't think there's any issue with him acknowledging. Yeah. This dude absolutely destroyed us. And he's playing like the best player in the world right now. Like is your issue that he's even thinking it or is your issue that he's saying it? Because Bro, I think little column much a, any, little it, column B. Well, we're all thinking it. Yeah. I, but then don't, but then don't say, that's what I'm saying. Well, what, don't does say it, it, what does that change? I don't know, man. You're 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 telling me you're Giannis's teammate right now. You're feeling real confident in your MVP. If you're Giannis's teammate right it now, and you even... just saw and you just had KD drop 49, 17, and ten on your head. Are you thinking anything other than, man, this guy has a fucking problem, and he's probably the I, best player in the world, and we really need to be better if we want to beat him? I, I believe in the heat of battle in a second round series that is three two. Delusion should take over. It's the one time there is no time for self-awareness. Delusion should take over. Okay, so why? So so when DeAndre Ayton was like looking at the stat sheet, just absolutely marveling at the you know thirty-two, twenty, and ten that Nikola Jokic put on him, and saying, "Yeah, he's the MVP." Everyone's like, "Man, DeAndre Ayton, love this dude. Love the respect that he's showing to Nikola Jokic." Like, why why does Ayton get praised for that, but Giannis coming out and saying because he had just eliminated his ass. <laughs> He didn't That's actually. Why. It was it was three nothing at that point. But oh, okay, even better. Um, but they they were up three nothing. 
It was a very different. Okay, so if the Bucks come back and and like win Game Six after he said that, then does that change your feeling on him saying it in the first place? No. What if they come back and I, win the series? Well, I don't think they're going to do that. But what if they do? I I would still say that it was embarrassing. I, I, yeah, I mean, I I just like much fun. like everything else associated with the Bucks on Tuesday night in oh. Brooklyn. Um. Okay. So. A couple of things like the offensive stuff and the offensive process, definitely a problem. Not the first time we've talked about this. And I say all the time, it's like, I think, I think the Bucks defense has been like totally unfairly maligned and scrutinized in postseasons past. Like it's almost always been the offense that's let them down. And to your point about not attacking Harden more, there are definitely points where it's like, what are you doing? You know, holiday, trying to go ISO against Bruce Brown, you know, Middleton trying to ISO against KD that, you know, the early clock pull up threes from Giannis, even though like in the first half, there was one was like wide open. He was about to shoot it, took a step back, pivoted into a dribble handoff with Bryn Forbes. And they got a three out of that. And I was like, wow, that is growth right there. But then it all just kind of fell by the wayside. Although I will say like, I, I did think there were a lot of possessions where Giannis, like instead of settling for a jumper, attacked the space that Blake Griffin or Jeff Green was giving him, got his shoulder into that defender and laid the ball in or got to the free throw line. But, you know, in regards to the Harden thing, I I did think, you know, there were some possessions where they tried to attack him, not nearly enough, but like the Nets were able to survive it a lot because KD and Blake and Jeff Green were all like helping pretty aggressively off of Lopez, off PJ Tucker, off of Giannis. They are not scared of anyone outside of Middleton as a jump shooter. And nor should they be. Like th- this is the Bucks' fundamental issue as I see it. It's it's all well and good to be like, okay, like stop shooting threes then. Just go inside and attack the Nets' poor interior defense. But if the Nets can like load up in the middle of the floor, it doesn't matter as much that they don't have any great like individual interior defenders. Their team interior defense can still be solid. And they're going to either force you into like some tough shots inside or they're going to force you to kick it out to shooters that the Nets aren't scared of. And then you're just going to lose the math battle anyway because the Nets can just dot threes in your eye all game. So I don't think it's... I think... Well, I think, go ahead. I think the thing with Bud in the box is that they've just... They don't, they don't get the benefit of the doubt from anyone, right? And to be honest, nor should they. And so even even with the offensive stuff that you were just talking about and like some of the process stuff and yeah, even going at Harden, it's like, okay, should did they have to go at him every single time? But no, but the fact that we're sitting here the next day saying, but they could have and should have gone at him more, it's like, how are we still having these conversations? Like, how does this team, this coach, this MVP, like name them, how does this team still not seem to grasp the idea of like, maximizing every single possession, like valuing every single second minute possession of these huge playoff games and moments. Like it, it, to me, that's the, it's, it's not that you necessarily have to expect perfection, but it's like, how are we having the same conversations about this team over and over and over again? And at what point do we just like, well, we're, I think we're having that same conversation because the issues with their personnel have been fairly consistent. And I'm not I'm not a bud apologist. Like I think he 
has flaws as a playoff coach for sure. I just think so often, like everyone wants to boil it down to a problem with him when I think the problems go so far beyond that. And like, you can watch any playoff game and a lot of possessions bog down that way, especially at the end of the game. The defense is switching. They're forcing you to play ISO ball. And it's like, okay, if in this day and age, like if you don't have a pull-up threat that can like really bend a defense, get them out of their base, get them into panic mode, that's a problem. And this is the situation you're going to find yourself in if you don't have that guy. If like if Chris Middleton, and I'll give you credit for this, man. Like we were talking about, okay, like do they have a championship level creator? And I was kind of hedging and saying, well, like probably not individually, but maybe collectively, you know, between Middleton, Holiday, Giannis, they can cobble something together that's good enough to get them over the finish line in some tight playoff games. Like, no, they don't. They might win this series because of the state that the Nets are in. But if the Nets were fully healthy, like this series is over in maximum five games. And the reality is like the Nets can afford for their offense to get bogged down and for it to turn into ISO ball and just to play like simple high pick and roll with no other secondary action. They can afford that because they have the creators and the pull-up shooters to make it work. And the Bucks don't. And so it's like everyone wants to look at Bud and be like, well, he's so not inventive or he's so stubborn. And I think the reality is, it requires a lot more creativity from him. And if you want to compare him to like Eric Spolstra and the job that Spo did last year with maybe sort of similar limitations on that roster, then yeah, Bud is going to look bad by comparison. Like his system does not allow for the Bucks to kind of like play above their heads or above their capabilities at the offensive end. But to me, it's still more of a personnel issue than a coaching issue. Look, I, I don't disagree that there is plenty of blame to go around. I don't think this is all on Bud's shoulders. I don't think you know, a coaching upgrade miraculously turns this team into a championship favorite that just solves all of it. But like, you know, there are roster construction issues that we like, we've been talking about ad nauseum for a long time now. And yeah, to the point about, you know, like the, the shot creation stuff, when it comes to like whether or not a team has a championship level shot creator, closer, whatever you want to call it, I feel like that's the kind of like that can't be done by committee. You either have one or you don't, you know? And again, like Chris Middleton's a great player, but like, like as a yes or no, if you ask me, is he a championship level shot creator or closer? I'd say no, you know, and it, there, there, I remember um, growing up like in football, for example, like watching the NFL or whatever there, I remember there used to be a saying like the old saying is that uh, if you have two quarterbacks, it means you don't have one, you know, like if you, if, if you're not sure who your guy is, and you probably don't have one. And, you know, they used to say the same thing about goalies in hockey back in the day. It's different now because a lot of teams use multiple goalies. But, like, you get my drift. It's like, you either got one or you don't, man. And the Bucks have some good players, but I don't think they have that still. Well, and Drew that, Holiday ain't it either. That, that's sort of like the, they've kind of made their bones at the defensive end of the floor. And, you know, maybe, like, I, I've been on the record saying in the past, I think their defense is good enough to win them a championship in spite of the offensive limitations. I don't know if in this particular offensive environment, that's good enough anymore. That's that I think is what's changed. Even a couple of years ago, I've said it many times. Like I think they were closer to winning the 2019 championship than a lot of people have been willing to give them credit for. But now I, I just, 
I don't, like you can't win exclusively with defense anymore. And it's not exclusively with defense. Like the Bucks do have, like they've been a top 10 offense, you know, in each of the last three years, basically, like they're still a good offensive team. We're seeing the limitations in a playoff setting. And, and a lot of that falls on Giannis, man. It, it's, we can talk all we want about how he's just not in the right role. Like he's not a primary, he's not an initiator. He should be a play finisher. You need the initiators to be able to make him a play finisher. And maybe like the Bucks initiators just aren't good enough to do that. But his decision-making has been real bad. Those early clock pull-up threes don't need to be happening. You don't need to take a fade away when James Harden is guarding you in the post. Like the decision-making needs to be better. He needs to improve his post game. He needs to be able to take advantage when Jeff Green or Blake Griffin is guarding him in the post or when James Harden is guarding him in the post. You're not just barreling to the rim you know like it when you're initiating from the top of the floor like that should be out the window it's it should be about like where's your face-up game where's your post game how are you making it work against a defense that is sort of keyed towards stopping the things that you're most comfortable doing yeah and even like again you, you mentioned even those the wasted possessions right like some of the ones where he's early shot clock launching threes and okay once in a while he's made them in this series but for the most part he has not and and that's the kind of thing I'm talking about where it's like, this, this isn't their first rodeo anymore. It's not his first postseason rodeo. Like, how many times do they have to come up short in the playoffs before he cuts that stuff up? Before he, it, it becomes ingrained in his head that like, yo, this one wasted possession is one too many, you know, in this year against a great team. Like, that, I just don't understand how he doesn't seem to understand that yet. It boggles my mind. The other thing that's pretty mind-boggling is like we were talking about the championship level shot creators. And if like if you really boil it down, like how many of those guys truly exist in the NBA right now? Like less than 20 for sure. Oh, maybe my God. less than yeah, 50. like maybe 10. And would you not say in terms of that? Because I'm not even just saying just like start like top 10 players. I mean like pure like shot creator, like that type of thing, right? Championship level closer offensively. If we're saying there's less than 10, like is it not possible that the Nets have three of them? When healthy, yeah, pretty pretty remarkable. And that's that's why you know if they're healthy, they're the championship favorite. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, st- I again, the Nets are not out of the woods. I, it doesn't seem like Kyrie is coming back. It doesn't seem like Harden is going to be able to give them, you know, Harden level production or anything close to it. The Bucks can still win this series. You know, Jeff Green's not going to shoot seven for eight from three. But the Bucks got to be better. Like Middleton, I actually thought was pretty good in Game Five. Giannis was good at points. Holiday was good at points. But like the consistency needs to be there. The offensive process needs to be better. You know, the, I thought the defensive process for the most part was fine. You know, KD is just KD, and he was especially KD last night. <laughs> like that was, yeah, that was the most KD that he has ever been, and. I think there was only so much the Bucks defense could have done about that, but there's still some stuff they can clean up. You know, like there was one possession that like stuck out to me where it's like, uh, I think it was uh, KD, KD and Blake Griffin ran a DHO in the corner and uh, PJ Tucker was guarding KD and Giannis was guarding Blake Griffin. So it's like they run that DHO. That should be an automatic switch. Then you get Giannis on KD. And it's like, if they want to run another screen to screen Giannis out of that matchup, then let them. Like, they're going to have to eat a lot of clock to do that. But, like, instead they sent two to the ball, and then Blake Griffin just slipped, and KD hit him with the pass, 
and he scored at the rim. And it's like certain things like that where, you know, like the attention to detail and the focus and and just like the rapid fire decision making, I think could be a lot better. And and on the whole, as much as I want to say like the defensive process has been fine, like there are still mistakes like that that happen. And that's the kind of stuff that kills you. Small stuff like that. Small stuff like if you want to talk about decisions that Bud made that helped sink his team's chances, it's like, why in what's basically a must-win playoff game are you playing? I don't even know what the entire lineup was, but it was like Tenasis, Elijah Bryant, Forbes, Connaughton, and Giannis maybe? Or Lope? Like it was a, a preposterous lineup and it was only out there for three minutes, but like three too many. Yeah, and, and, and this is what I'm saying, man, where it's like, I, look, I agree with you that sometimes whether it's Bud or Giannis himself or whatever, like gets too much of the blame or people overblame them, right? Or just they pick things that they think, you know, is, is Bud's fault when it's not really. I agree with that. But like, think of what you just said, man. Think like, think of the lineup you just said played three minutes in a game five swing game in the second round of the playoffs given all that Mike Boonholzer should have learned over his past playoff failures. And it's like st- stuff like that keeps happening. And that's where it's like, yo, I, you know what? I don't feel bad that he gets overblamed at other times and people, you know, nitpick with him because he gives people plenty of reason to. And again, just has earned the opposite of the benefit of the doubt over the years. And even just like, you know, you, you mentioned that lineup versus Durant playing 48 minutes. There's a quote from Steve Nash last night that I wanted to read because I think it it really um, illuminates and it's not even that like Nash is some genius for thinking this way because most coaches in the playoffs do when they're playing for a championship. But uh, when you compare this comment, okay, to all of the things Bud has said over the years of, you know, well, the guy's got to, you got to keep the guys fresh and whatever. This is what Steve Nash said about Kevin Durant playing 48 minutes last night. What can I tell you? It's not ideal. But if we didn't play him 48, we probably weren't winning tonight. It's an easy decision that's very tough to make. I hate to put him in that position, but we're taking a few risks here. Right? Like, and, and I love time. the way he put it. I, I love the way he put it. It's an easy decision, but it's tough to make. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, it's like we started off this episode by talking about risk to player health. And so I, I don't want to lionize that too much because playing Kevin Durant 48 minutes when he's, I know he's two years removed from that injury, but. He's played less than 50 games since rupturing his Achilles. That's a risk. Playing James Harden 46 minutes on a wonky hamstring is a risk. We we can laud the Nets for, you know, in a must-win game, like pulling out all the stops. But if we want to be consistent, what we were saying about protecting players, you know, that's also a little bit dicey. So... Fair enough, and 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 I'm not, I'm not even necessarily saying Steve Nash is right or wrong. And in you know, in in fact, in the case of letting James Harden decide he would play and then playing him 46 minutes on a strained hamstring, probably wrong. Uh, James Harden, by the way, on that one leg, played more minutes than any Buck, if you believe that. But yeah, I'm not even saying whether he's right or wrong. I'm just saying it's like think of that quote and and in contrast to all of the things Mike Budenholzer has said over the years when he has been pressed about why guys haven't played more in the playoffs. Uh, all right. Do you, you feel like that's enough on Bucks Nets? <laughs> Can we move on? I think so. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. 
And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, we're pushing past a 50-minute mark here. So by the time this pod drops, we're going to be close to tip-off of Game 5 of Hawks Sixers and after that, Game 5 of Clippers Jazz. So let's start with Hawks Sixers. Obviously a very a fascinating Game 4, a frustrating Game 4 in a lot of ways. Uh, the Hawks managed to pull that one out to even that series. I thought Trey Young was super impressive in that game. You know, in a game in which he was really struggling to score, his shot wasn't falling, his floater wasn't going down, he was getting pressure from both sides, getting sandwiched in the middle of the floor. Like, I think the Sixers have done a really good job of limiting him as a scorer. But he found those workarounds as a playmaker, got 17, 18 assists. I don't remember exactly what he finished with, but the playmaking counters that he was able to come up with to help the Hawks get over the finish line there, I thought were very impressive. At the same time, I mean, the Sixers defense was really damn good in that game. And they didn't lose the game because of their defense. They lost the game because of their offense, which is a movie that we've seen before from Philly. And obviously I think the big story was that Joel Embiid did not look right. He shot four for 20, 0 for 12 in the second half, had no lift. So he wasn't really able to get it going in the post. He was relegated to being a jump shooter a lot of the time. That, you know, layup that he missed out of the pick and roll with, I think the Sixers down one in the waning seconds when I think a healthy Joel Embiid either dunks that ball or just like finishes an uncontested layup rather than trying to contort his body in such a way that uh, he would avoid contact or avoid a bad landing and winds up bonking the layup. You wrote about this, so I would love to hear your thoughts on how the Sixers finished that game, how Embiid looked, and kind of where the series goes from here. Man, it was baffling and just... It was ludicrous. Look, I, I, in a normal situation, I completely get, you know, you ride your main guy and it doesn't matter that he went 0 for 7 in the third quarter. Like, he's the guy that got you there. You you know, Ka- Kawhi Leonard, game 7 against the Sixers a couple years ago, I think went actually shot like 11 of, what, 30 in that game? But yeah, you empty the clip. I get it. But this was not the normal franchise player emptying the clip and you're just fine with it game. This was Joel Embiid still playing on a partially torn meniscus, clearly not right that game in particular. Admitted after the game, he didn't feel right, or I just didn't have it tonight. This is a game where your franchise player who's playing on a partially torn meniscus has already left the game once to go back to the locker room, has now sat for a much longer period of time than he usually would in a playoff game. It was like over six minutes of game time consecutively from late third quarter to almost midway through the fourth. The Sixers won, which is very rare for them, winning minutes without Joel Embiid in the playoffs. They won that six-minute and six-second stretch, 14-13. We we spoke on the phone about how we both thought Doc Rivers and the Sixers should have actually tried to just close that game out without him based on what he looked like health-wise and the fact that, yes, he did not have any lift on his jumpers. He was very clearly only trying to draw fouls. 
because he clearly didn't have any confidence in his finishing ability either. Like there was a really ugly play at the end of the third quarter where he tried to draw a three-point foul on Kevin Huerter instead of actually trying to make the bucket. Same thing with that potential go-ahead uh, layup at the end. Like he, it seemed he was maybe trying to draw some contact as opposed to just f- finishing it because he didn't have the lift to do it. Um, so he probably shouldn't have finished the game at all. And worst case, you come home in a 2-2 series, but with a somewhat rested-ish Joel Embiid. And okay, you know what? If someone, if you're listening right now or whatever, and you think that's an absolutely ludicrous idea that Doc Rivers would even consider not finishing the game with Embiid despite what he looked like, okay, fine, I grant you that. But then, then you have to admit that it's equally ludicrous the way they used him once they did reinsert him into the lineup. Because if they were going to bring him back in, if, if, he, if Doc Rivers insisted on finishing with Embiid, could they not have used him as more of an offensive decoy instead of funneling literally every single possession through him? He, Joel Embiid, after sitting for more than six minutes, after going over seven in the third quarter, after clearly not being healthy all game, okay, and looking not right, used eight of the final 14 Sixers possessions used six of their final eight possessions over the last three and a half minutes, uh, went 0 for 5 with two turnovers during that time, and even the few possessions that were finished by another sixer were originally actions run, it seemed, to get the ball into Joel Embiid's hands, and then just some other things happened after that. Like, I could not believe it. They, They just continually went to him and were trying to milk something that was not there, and it was... Literally, like legitimately painfully obvious that it wasn't there because the guy was health-wise not right, could not find the basket for the life of him. Just keep dumping the ball down to him. Like it it was I, I know a lot of people blame Joel Embiid for the way that game went. Fair enough. The guy went 0 of 12, literally the first player in history to take at least 12 shots in the second half of a playoff game and not make one. But I think Doc Rivers and the Sixers put him in a very bad spot. And they should get some of the blame here too, you know, whether it was Doc's play calling, whether it was Joel Embiid's teammates, maybe being gun shy and deferring to him. Maybe it was Embiid's stubbornness himself. I don't know. We don't know the full scope of it, but there is a lot of blame to go around there. And then look, Ben Simmons, you know, I I don't want to have the whole Ben Simmons discourse again, but Ben Simmons actually managed to score less second half points than Joel Embiid, who had zero second half field goals, by the way. Ben Simmons missed a putback off that Joel Embiid bricked layup attempt late in the game, right? That got a lot less attention than Joel Embiid actually missing the layup. Ben Simmons, because of his limitations, was not even on the floor for the Sixers' final possession, down three, understandable. Tobias Harris, who I think has answered the bell throughout the playoffs, actually. I think he's had a really good playoffs. Was oddly deferential down down the stretch of that game again and it was very much old Tobias Harris and some of the old Sixers issues cropping up again where it's like yo Tobias Harris man you're capable of doing this you've actually been doing it the entire playoffs why are you so quick to defer like I included one screen grab in that post you mentioned where he got a double screen from Simmons and Embiid and it gave him like a pretty nice downhill runway to attack Bogdan Bogdanovich okay not not an elite stopper and before Harris could even lift his head to acknowledge the fact of like it was bogged down in front of him and he had some runway he immediately catches takes one step and turns and immediately looks for Joel and hits him uh, above the break and and bead bricks a three-pointer now if you watch the play unfold like Clint Capella actually does a nice job of showing Harris a bit of a crowd but as I mentioned in that post like at some point 
you know, when, when you're trying to close out a playoff game and like being a shot creator, a closer, the whole thing we talked about, at some point you also need to be able to make a play when a good defense or a good defensive player puts you in a bind. And Tobias Harris did not seem interested in proving he was capable of that at all down the stretch of that game. And I just thought, yeah, again, whether it was Harris deferring and the teammates deferring, whether it was Ben Simmons' limitations, Doc Rivers' play calling, or Embiid's stubbornness, or hell, throw the front office in there for the roster construction, right? And some of the some of the limitations of the roster around Joel Embiid. Like, there was a lot of blame to go around for why that game devolved the way it did beyond just, well, Joel Embiid shit the bed. And Harris has been really good in the clutch this season is the thing. He has. So I'm I'm with you on, you know, probably wanting to see him be more assertive down the stretch of that game. I do want to say, you know, you mentioned the Ben Simmons thing, him not being on the floor for that last possession when they were down three. I just thought like the, the conversation around that was so overblown and silly. Like there's six seconds left. You're down three. There is no utility in having Ben Simmons on the floor in that situation. And let's be real, if you had prime Shaq on your team, there would be no reason to have Shaq on the floor for that possession because what's he going to do? He's not going to shoot a three. Whoever is guarding him is just going to completely ignore him to go and like double team somebody else. And if he catches the ball inside the arc, it's like, okay, you'll let him get a two or you'll foul him and trust that he's at best going to split the pair. I'm not saying it's not an issue that those are Ben Simmons' limitations, but like those are his limitations. So the fact that he wasn't on the floor for that possession with them down by three in like the waning seconds of the game doesn't mean anything. And I think Simmons has gotten, he's been good at points like, and and they've interestingly like been running a lot of stuff for him on that left block. Like they'll run a cross screen for him to get posted up on the left block. And they've been running a lot of kind of, interesting variations on a set out of that configuration. Uh, It was a lot more effective in game three than it was in game four. I think in large part because MB just didn't have the pop in game four to do the kind of screening and cutting and diving that he was doing off of Simmons in the post. Like, I don't necessarily think that the Hawks figured it out, but uh, I do think there were sort of some diminishing returns. And the big one is, I think one time when Simmons caught the ball, he like faced up and took John Collins off of the balance and scored. The rest of the time, he was posting to pass. And that's what he's doing the majority of the time, is he's posting to pass. Like, he can hit the jump hook, but, like, I don't think there's any need, really, to double Ben Simmons in the post. But to his credit, the the Hawks have been showing these baseline doubles to Joel Embiid for most of the series, and Simmons has done a good job when that baseline double comes the weak side defender who is most often a small guy. You know, a lot of times it's Trey. Sometimes it's been Lou Will. Simmons done a good job of sealing that guy and giving Embiid like a place to throw the ball when that double team comes. And I think they are finding interesting ways to use him at the offensive end. But like his limitations are his limitations. I mean, like his his free throw shooting is an issue. Just like Giannis's free throw shooting is an issue. And I swear if I see like one more person be like, we only talk about what Ben Simmons doesn't do well. Like we'd never talk about like this guy's first team, all defense for the second year in a row. He was like finalist runner up this year, defensive player of the year. He is three time all-star already three time all-star. He's been an all NBA -er, which means he's been recognized as being one of the 15 best players in the league, which frankly has never been true for being honest. Right. We talk about what Ben Simmons is good at all the time. (laughs) Like what do we, this is a max player who is expected to be, essentially the second pillar of a championship 
hopeful, you know, next to a generational big man. There are expectations that come along with that. And when you get into the playoffs, people are going to talk about your weaknesses because they are going to matter a lot. Yeah, but and again, that's even going back to like even yesterday, like that in the wake of the KD performance, like, oh man, I, I you know, I think you, you, we're very capable of having multiple conversations here. You know, like you can talk about KD having a great night and the Bucks failures. You can talk about Ben Simmons' strengths and also acknowledge that his limitations hold the Sixers back as presently constructed. Like people act like we can't have, and that's what I was saying to PM. Like we're not, we're not doing brain surgery here, man. We're talking about basketball. We're very capable of multitasking. Really, I promise you, we can do it. And just like with the Bucks, a lot of it comes down to like it's a, a a kind of roster construction issue. And I think the step that Tobias Harris has taken this season has mitigated that. But they still don't really have an actual point guard. Like Ben Simmons is a point guard in the open floor, but he is not a point guard in the half court. You know, it's a, it's a similar problem with the Bucks, where it's like we can point at all the things that Giannis isn't good at and say that that's what's holding the Bucks back. But realistically, like if they had the right creator initiator to pair him with where he could be playing in his ideal role, then it's like suddenly, you know, we're talking about him the way that we were talking about AD in the playoffs last year. It's like he's an absolutely perfect second banana at the offensive end of the floor while being, you know, like one of the best defensive players in the league. And then it's fine. You don't need to talk about his weaknesses because he's in the perfect role. Um Point is, game five of, of Sixers-Hawks is going tonight. Um, I don't know. Is there any like one particular point of interest, something that you'll be watching for in this game? A- apart from Embiid's health. Like, that's too well, easy. Say, yeah, it's, it's literally just what Embiid looks like at the beginning. Um, yeah, I guess maybe like uh, maybe Harris in general, because I think in general he's, he's had a great playoffs. And uh, again, it was a little weird and jarring to see how differential he was in game four. And I'm interested to see what he looks like to start the game. Is he looking to attack coming off those screens and those double screens? Is he looking to defer? Um, I think, you know, you you don't want to read too much into the the first few possessions of a game, but I do think it will be interesting and a good indication of what kind of night Harris is in for based on how aggressive and looking for his own he is coming off those screens. Especially when he's got Bogdan, Bogdanovich on him, as much as I love Bogdan. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, kind of like with the Hawks offense, you know, as much as Embiid struggled at the offensive end in game four, he was still a monster defensively. And I feel like what we started to see the Hawks do a bit as that game went on was just sort of go away from Capella as a screener for Trey. Like he just didn't really want any part of Embiid guarding the central action that opens up a different can of worms. Cause if like Embiid has been guarding Capella off of the ball, like he can still wreak a ton of havoc as a helper. But one thing the Hawks I thought had a lot of success with was basically running pick and pop with an empty side with Trey and Bogdanovich or Trey and Herder. And most of the time it's them going after Korkmaz and Korkmaz doesn't want to switch. So he's trying to show and recover And because it's an empty corner, there's nobody to come up and make that rotation. And they got good stuff out of that pretty much every time. Like they're getting clean looks for Bogdanovich, for Herder out of that. And I'm I'm curious to see how often they go back to that well. And if there's a way that the Sixers can adjust to sort of take that away. Also, in case we didn't have enough news on this absolutely insane Wednesday, the Dallas Mavericks and Donnie Nelson their longtime president of basketball operations are (laughs) reportedly parting ways. So 
how much power is Haralabas Volgaris wielding in that clown show of an organization? What is going on in Dallas? Um, yeah, so that's like one of the pieces of news that I actually just forgot to hit on off the top was that bombshell athletic report about Haralabob <laughs> commandeering the Mavs front office and the tension that that's created. Uh, unclear like how much that played into this. I would guess probably a lot. Uh, if that report is in any way accurate. So there you go. Front office shakeup in Dallas. I don't know. I'm putting you on the spot here, but do you have any thoughts on that? Um, other than, you know, I, I mentioned it with the Pelicans thing with Van Gundy, but uh, I would not like to surround a generational talent with chaos. I'd prefer to surround them with stability. Now, it's not really going to matter in the sense that Doncic is going to sign a Supermax extension this summer. But still, players can always force their way out, man. And I, I just don't surround them with chaos. Like, run a stable, tight ship, not a creaky, leaky ship steered by Haralabas Vulgaris. Uh, now, I will say that I would not be surprised if most of that story was just simply from Lucas reps. <laughs> Or, or like Donnie Nelson or like somebody close to yeah. Donnie Nelson, right? Like, yeah. or both. I mean, yeah. but I mean, it, it was clearly coming from somebody with some sort of an agenda and some sort of a vendetta against, and, and I'm not saying it's necessarily off base or wrong, but like, there's a reason <laughs> that that stuff leaked. And obviously, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe Donnie Nelson was just planning to step away anyway for all the reasons that were mentioned in that article and like him feeling like he had lost his voice or lost his power and just didn't like the direction it was going. Or maybe the situation reached a tipping point and he was the guy who lost the power struggle. Uh, I'm assuming we'll get more information on this in the coming hours or days, but yeah, not a great scene in Dallas. Um, Okay. Let's wrap this here. Uh, We got Clippers jazz tonight going in game five as well. Obviously, no Kawhi Leonard. Mike Conley has also been ruled out for that game. Things were trending in the right direction for the Clippers. I thought they'd made some really nice defensive adjustments. We, I mean, we were really seeing how much the absence of Conley, I think, was hurting the Jazz because the secondary creation after Mitchell was getting rid of the ball just wasn't there. Like, the the complementary playmaking, I think, was leaving a lot on the table and was letting the Clippers get away with throwing extra bodies at Mitchell and allowing them to recover and snuff everything out. Gobert really wasn't getting a whole heck of a lot because it just seemed like nobody could get him the ball in those tight pockets that were being created when they were throwing two at Mitchell. And PG had two really good shooting games in a row. The Tin Man himself came through with a couple of really nice performances. They got a big game out of Marcus Morris last game. Reggie Jackson has been invaluable for them. And I think, you know, they were going back to Utah with uh, with a pretty good chance of stealing game five, especially if Conley wasn't going to continue to play. But now, obviously, this whole series completely changes. And I don't know. I mean, like, what does that small lineup still work for the Clippers without Kawhi in it? Do they still have enough offense without Kawhi? I- I'm having a pretty hard time imagining them winning this series now. Like yeah, even if no, Conley doesn't come back for Utah, I think I think the Jazz got to be a pretty huge favorite here. No Kawhi, I think the Jazz are the better team without Kawhi in the mix, even without Conley, and no Kawhi with two out of three in Utah. 
the Jazz should win this series. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the bottom line. But again, so like, not only do they have no Conley, but Mitchell's playing on a wonky ankle. And I don't know. Like, I, I think ultimately... Is, is anyone, is any active player right now in the playoffs playing on two healthy legs, feet, knees, anything? I know people are banged up in the playoffs every yeah. year, but this is ridiculous. I don't know. I mean, I and I know it's like we say this every year that like the healthiest team is the best team and like pretty much every champion like gets some break, some measure of luck along the way. But this is another level, man. Like this is where we're at right now with how many teams are left? Seven teams are left. I think every yeah. single one of them is dealing with like a pretty significant absence or that, or in, or debilitating injury, you know. That in any other year would be like the injury of the playoffs. Mm-hmm. You got the Jazz with Mitchell hobbled and no Conley. The Clippers now without Kawhi. The Suns now without CP. And the Suns have been the team that's like avoided all of this for the entire yeah. season, right? Like that's been the kind of like underplayed element yeah. of their success. Uh, but even before the COVID scare, uh, CP also had one shoulder for much of the first two rounds. True. The Bucks are without DiVincenzo. I mean, they're the team maybe with like the fewest excuses, but like... I- I, I, I'm not even putting my pies on in this list. All right, what are you doing? What are you doing? Well, I just mean for them, like with the thin margin of yeah. error that they had in that series yeah. against the Nets, that does matter. Like that, do, that does hurt. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, obviously it's not on the level of the absences that some of these other teams are dealing with. Um, and then the Nets, obviously, like hobbled Harden, no Kyrie, and the Sixers, Joel Embiid, <laughs> Joel Embiid's playing on a torn meniscus. I don't think enough has been made of that yeah. uh, because before that game four, which was. Again, he was great defensively. Offensively, it was a stinker. But like those first three games against Atlanta were insane. So he's playing on a torn meniscus. And I don't know. Is there any team that I forget? Oh, Atlanta. Is Atlanta healthy? DeAndre Hunter. DeAndre, DeAndre Hunter. Hunter. I, yeah. And they've missed him too. Like Yeah. So I don't know, man. It's just as much as everyone's kind of like dinged up in the playoffs every year, It's I don't think it's ever been like this before. And, you know, if we want to, like, come full circle and talk about what we were talking about off the jump, like, that's just, it's a consequence of, of the type of season that they're playing. Yep. Should should I uh, put a positive spin, a positive bow at the end of this Please. and get to a fan shout out Please. before we... So I've got a few in the chamber, so I'm just going to give it one this week and we'll get to the rest in the coming weeks. But uh, I will give it to Justin Frith, who reached out on Instagram Uh, Let me know he's been listening since November of 2019. He listens from Jamaica, uh, says that Pound the Rock is some of the best basketball analysis out there, that we never disappoint. He sends his love and respect and also love that he he ended his message. He had sent this to me, uh, I think, just after last week's episode. I think it was maybe after we had talked about the the Bucks going down 0-2. And he ended his message by saying that he couldn't wait until the next episode because the clowns will be out by then. And I, I assume he was talking about the Bucks because that's the only team I believe I called a clown last week. But uh, yeah, so Justin Frith in Jamaica, thank you for your support. Thanks for listening. And as I always say, if you are a fan of pound the rock hit us up on social media let us know where you're listening from how long you've been a fan what you think of the show and we will get you a shout out on a future episode hopefully a much happier future episode to be honest with you i'm spent i got nothing yeah i know and and as i said last week any one of these could be my last episode of the playoffs uh or for the foreseeable future 
because uh, the due date for my wife and my baby is literally a week away today. So that could happen anytime. And that would, yeah, be some positive news in my life that would take my mind away from the somewhat depressing NBA goings on. But until then, this is what we have. This is the NBA reality we're currently living in. And it's not all bad. Like, I, you know, maybe we'll just get a transcendent Paul George performance tonight that will rescue the Clippers. Playoff basketball is still great, even when it's sad. So looking forward to see what happens tonight. And uh, for, you know, all the injured players out there, we're just kind of like hoping for the best and for expedient recoveries and no long-term damage. Uh, I think that's the best that we can hope for. And hoping that all our listeners are doing well and staying safe and healthy. With that, I'm going to put a bow on this. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock. 